Hello and welcome to Viewpoints. My name is Boris Shasai and I'll be with you for the next half hour. On today's show, the city of Edmonton will be planting 2 million trees over the next 8 years, investing more than $100 million. When you plant more trees and you increase the tree cover and the vegetation cover in the city, it actually slows down rain and reduces pressure on our drainage system, reducing flooding and the associated damages from flooding. Bill C-18 is blurring the media landscape across the country. Facebook started blocking content on its platforms. Local community radios and newspapers could be hit harder than others. You know, we're going to be okay. We're going to lose a lot of our web traffic, which is the majority of eyeballs on our stories, but keep the lights on. There's a lot of sort of newer Canadian media that are online only and it's going to do irreparable harm to these websites that suddenly cannot get eyes on their screens and they don't have print revenue. Crime on Vancouver Island is on the rise. StatsCan just published the latest numbers. I think that we really need to focus on the kind of social determinants of, of health and of crime um, like poverty. And recent research published by the Canadian Centre for policy alternatives shows that Nova Scotians face more isolation when it comes to accessing mental health care. Welcome to Viewpoints. Local news nationwide. Follow us on Twitter at Canada LJI. Listen to all our news online at canada-invo.ca. Welcome and thanks for keeping us company. The impact of Bill C-18 continues to change the media landscape in Canada. The Online News Act was made into law last June, requiring tech companies to compensate Canadian media organizations to host news contents on their platform. The bill has been met with strong opposition from Meta and Google, which both rejected the framework. They are now beginning to restrict access to Canadian media content through their platforms to avoid paying any compensation. And Canadian newsrooms and media are already feeling the pinch. Last week, we heard from Alex Friedman's analysis of the situation in an interview with uh, Pamela Hassan of CKCA Smithers in BC. Alex is the executive director of the Community Radio Fund of Canada and which also produces Viewpoints and its French counterpart, Point Vue. This week, journalist Scott Onishuk uh, posted in Kootenay, BC, met up with Ed Zick, the programming director for Kootenay Co-op Radio, and for which Scott works as an LGI journalist. Zick had a lot to say about how C-18 will affect his station and others as well. Scott also spoke with Tyler Harper, a reporter with and the editor of the Nelson Star in BC, to get his insight on how C-18 will impact the Star and other media organizations across the country. Here's Scott Onishuk for speaking with Tyler Harper. Well, it'll impact us primarily in web traffic. More than half of our web traffic comes straight from article clicks through Facebook or Google. As soon as those links are gone, which will happen this month, it is going to wipe out right away a whole ton of our readership. And this is not exclusive, of course, to Nelson Star. This is every Canadian news organization. Right. But I feel like it will have a larger impact on smaller markets because, for example, someone like the CBC, which will probably be a global or something like that, or those are going to be the primary sites that people are going to go to and they don't cover, you know, markets like Nelson that often. 
You know, it's really interesting. So, it, because a lot of this is sort of unknown, like it, this happened in Australia, but the Australian government backtracked and we didn't really get to see how it played out there. Australian companies sort of ended up making their own deals with Facebook. We're in a really interesting situation here where we don't really know what's going to happen. Theoretically, this is going to play out the same for all media companies, but it's, it's really not the same. The Nelson Star has, we're lucky because we have a print product, so we have print advertising. And like a lot of newspapers who were never able to translate online readership into online advertising, we live and die by print advertising here in town. So again, because we have print revenue, you know, we're going to be okay. We're going to lose a lot of our web traffic, which is the majority of eyeballs on our stories, but keep the lights on. For websites like the TIE, the Discourse, the Narwhal, there's a lot of sort of newer Canadian media that are online only, and it's going to do irreparable harm to these websites that suddenly cannot get eyes on their screens and they don't have print revenue. I think what we actually need to be doing, and we've started doing this with the Star, is trying to retrain our readers to signing up for newsletters to get uh, news straight to them, getting back in the habit of going straight to a news site's website, and also supporting news, you know, paying for news. We need to train people to start thinking about news as something they have to pay for because journalism is not free. This is a costly venture, and tax dollars obviously go to CBC, but that's just CBC. Every other news organization in Canada is either a nonprofit or a private entity that needs financial support. And that's, you know, the thought with the bill in general is that that's what the government says. It's going to put more money into the journalist's hands because people are going to buy subscriptions. And like you said, we've got to train people, I guess, for that to happen. But there's going to be, hopefully, a lot of people that will adapt and do that. But you got to think there's going to be a lot of people that, once the simplicity is gone, that's just not the media they're going to seek anymore. Yeah, and that, you know, it's a shame, too. I, I'm really curious to see community reaction to the disappearance of all news links on Facebook. Even though we've tried to get the message out there and inform people about what's happening and why it's happening. You know, anecdotally, I can tell you, I'm still having conversations with people who don't know this is going to happen. And it's happening this month. Facebook has said in August, this is going to happen. All news links are going to go away. And I, just to clarify what that means, too, is... It's not just the Nelson Star's Facebook page. It's if you share a news link on your personal feed with people, it's not going to appear. No Canadian news at all on Facebook, except for Canadian news that is generated by international outlets. So you might see a New York Times story for Canada or a BBC story about Canada, but you won't see a Golden Mail. You won't see Nelson Star. You won't see anything from Post Media. And I don't think people are, are ready for this. I would think most people have no idea that this is coming. This is going to be a profound change for Canadian media, how we adapt with this. And something else is probably important to underline here. There is no going back. C-18 is law. We have to grapple with this. What could happen, sort of above my head, of course, but if I had to guess, I would think that perhaps media companies will make their own deals with Facebook. It should also be said, you know, Google is kind of the big one, actually. We're, we're concentrating on Facebook, but... Google is a major traffic source for Canadian news. And under this new legislation, if Google bans all news links, you're not even going to be able to search for the NelsonStar.com. So it's not just news links. It'll be as if we're wiped off the web. Now, of course, we're not wiped off the web. Our websites will still be there. But you're going to have to seek them out. Figure out 
which news media you value, download their app if they have one, sign up for newsletters if they have one, pay for a digital subscription, which is incredible service to that media organization, and try to skip the middleman, as it were, of social media, because this is what we need to survive. That all sounds great. It's going to be difficult to do without a lot of organizations raising their marketing, too. And it's so simple to Google what you think you know something, but knowing the exact address that you need, a lot of people just don't. Yeah, and we haven't had to think about that for years. We've been trained in a way of consuming news, and it's been fine to that point. But we've run into a situation where we've realized that the best interests of Canadian media and Canadians are not in the hands of multinational corporations that are owned in in some ways, at least in Facebook's way, by a singular billionaire. These people and these companies do not have ethical quandaries about media. They don't have the best interests of journalism or news at heart. We've run into a situation now where we have to deal with that. Right. Most people I've talked to so far were more scared about this happening, but it sounds like you have some optimism because of how this can help putting money in the hands of journalists. And like you're saying, having people reevaluate how they get news, not taking everything they see on Facebook as absolute truth. I would say tentative optimism. So I think this is going to be hard. Don't get me wrong. Like this is going to be extremely difficult for Canadian media and Canadian media is already having an awful year. We've seen thousands of layoffs across companies. Bell and Post Media have shut down papers and radio stations across Canada. This is a bad year for Canadian media, and we've been going through it for several years now already. That said, I am a little optimistic, and I think it's because if we can just get readers to engage with their chosen news organization directly, I think we'll be healthier for it. If we can wean Canadian readers off social media as a way of engaging with news, I think we'll be the better for it. I don't know how it's going to play out, though. If there's any reason for optimism, it's that this forces readers to rethink Canadian news, decide what, how much they value it, and then start to engage with it on hopefully healthier terms. It definitely seems like there's potential for that. I mean, like you said, the system we have right now running through these billionaires isn't isn't perfect. It's broken in many ways, but it is so simple, which is why this is going to be difficult to, to adapt to. Yeah, and I, I should say, too, that if it seems I'm going easy on the federal government, they did not think this through. I, I think their hard stance with these companies was poorly thought out. I think the federal government is, in fact, to blame for the mess that we're in now. I think the intent was good to get... Canadian content paid for by web giants, but C-18 was not well done. And the people who are going to have to pay for this now are media companies and journalists like myself. The thought I would leave you with here, too, is sort of a direct plea to anybody in Nelson who consumes news. You need to start engaging directly with your chosen news organization. You need to make a point of going to their website directly. Signing up for newsletters is very important because that brings the news directly to your inbox as well. And again, paying for news when you can. The Nelson Star, for example, has a, we've introduced a paywall in the last year. Very affordable. We're talking about less than a cup of coffee per week. Okay, well, Tyler, I appreciate you calling in and providing insight on this. It sounds like we got some interesting months ahead. Thanks for having me, Scott. You're welcome. Thanks. That was Tyler Harper of the Nelson Star sharing his thoughts on C-18 and the impact it'll have on media going forward. I also spoke with Ed Zick, the programming manager here at Kootenai Co-op Radio. He explained how C-18 will affect our station and others like it. 
Ed, how do you expect C18 to impact radio, specifically our station, Cooney Co-op Radio? Well, it won't necessarily impact radio per se. We will continue to broadcast the news as we have always done. With C18, the general term that's being bandied about is a ban on media. And it's not necessarily a ban on media. It's a ban on Canadian news organizations on social media. So if you're accustomed to getting your news through your Facebook feed, that's going to change. And do you have confidence that people will be able to adapt and seek out the news that Canadian media produces? I have faith that people will adapt in one way or another. Before Facebook, people got their news in various ways, and they will continue to do so, those who are interested. The only thing that may change is that news will no longer be customized to someone's tastes. It's an interesting time in the media business. Everybody had all sorts of utopian views of how social media was going to change the landscape, how it was always going to be free, and it turns out that content can't necessarily be free if you want people to get paid for creating that content. Whether that's music, whether that's news, whether that's novels or short stories, creators need to be paid for that content to be able to make a living doing it and doing it well. So in terms of C18, although it is inconvenient that news organizations can't just post an Instagram thing about what they're doing right now to get more people to pay attention to it. Ultimately, I think it's a battle worth having because we do need to pay the creators of content for what they do. Hi, I'm Ed Halverson in Liverpool, Nova Scotia, and you're listening to Viewpoints. Violent crime in several Vancouver Island communities is on the rise. This according to new numbers published by Statistics Canada. Warren Silver, an analyst with StatsCan, says that's part of a broader trend across Canada where violent crime peaked in the mid to late 1990s before falling until recent years. The Violent Crime Severity Index, or VCSI, is the tool which measures changes in the level of severity of crime in Canada from year to year. Mick Sweetman spoke to Dr. Lauren Mays, a professor of criminology at Vancouver Island University, and with the Warren Silver, an analyst with Statistics Canada. Violent crime is something that we're really tracking right now because we've seen increases in quite a lot of places. So, um, so it's not unusual what we're seeing in Nanaimo. In Nanaimo, the Violent Crime Severity Index went up slightly in 2022 by 1.3%, after an increase of 43% in 2021. It is currently at the highest level since the measurement, which gives more weight to severe crimes, started to be used in 1998. The city with the highest rate of violent crime in British Columbia is Williams Lake, which saw a 72% increase in the Violent Crime Severity Index last year. Silver cautions that smaller communities will have more volatility in the crime indexes as it takes fewer serious crimes to make big changes. When you're talking of smaller communities, whether it's smaller municipalities on the island or, you know, uh, entire territories, you have smaller numbers. And because of that, like one or two difference can make a huge difference and more fluctuation in the rate. So say, for example, you have a small municipality on the island and there's one homicide that happens because the population is so small, that's going to have a huge impact, whereas that would have a lot less of an impact in a big urban center. Nanaimo ranks 21st for violent crime in the province and is fifth on Vancouver Island, while Port Alberti remains the most violent city on the island, a position it's held since 2016 when it surpassed Victoria. 
The community with the least violence on Vancouver Island in 2022 was Qualicum Beach, which saw a 38% drop in the violent crime severity index. Lauren Mays, a professor in criminology at Vancouver Island University, says it's important to not only look at how many crimes are being committed in a community, but also who is most likely to commit those crimes. The majority of people commit crimes between the ages of, I don't know, 14 and anywhere between 24 and 34, depending on when you're really diving into the stats there. But generally, people engage in crime when they're in their adolescent period, when they're kind of figuring out rules and and boundaries and things like that. And so for the most for most people, engagement in crime is really limited to those teenage and, and young adult years. So it's very important to think about, well, how much of a population is actually in their prime crime committing years, you could say, at any given time. When we look at some of the drops in crime that happened across North America in the 2000s, let's say, um, after it peaked in the, the mid to late 90s, a lot of that can be attributed to the demographics of people aging out of crime and there being fewer people in the younger uh, generation after them. And so we need to think about whether some of the rise in crime that we have been seeing might be attributed to demographics. Is that the case here? I'm not sure. I've not evaluated that thoroughly, but it's something that is always important to keep in mind when looking at at crime statistics. Silver says that specific types of crime are driving the increases on Vancouver Island. Some of the violations that are driving the higher CSI on Vancouver Island include making or distributing child pornography. So that's one that we're seeing more of an increase in. So it could be that there's more cracking down on it or more of it being reported or caught. This is police reported uh, numbers. So this is numbers that police have uh, investigated and you know substantiated and reported to us at StatsCan, as well as increases in breaking and entering and mischief. Uh, Some violations that are driving the violent CSI are uh, increases in sexual assault level one, robbery, uttering threats, and assault level two. Nanaimo saw four homicides in 2022, down one from 2021, resulting in three people being charged. Assaults in Nanaimo were up by 3% last year, with 857 incidents 285 involvement of weapon, and 11 aggravated assaults. There were 34 assaults against police officers in Nanaimo last year, a 37% drop from 2021. Meanwhile, there are 130 cases of sexual assault, including one of aggravated sexual assault and one with a weapon causing bodily harm, a 1% increase with 43 people charged. 29 children in Nanaimo were victims of sexual violations in 2022, down from 47 in 2021, with seven people charged. Nanaimo had 12 incidents involving a firearm in 2022, the same number as 2021. Mays says the solution to increasing crime is to address its root causes. I think it's really difficult when communities hear, oh, the, the crime rate's going up here, to not want to get even more defensive or divisive and have an us versus them mentality and say, well, we need to be harder on people. Where if we were really thinking about the root causes of crime and wanting to minimize that in the long term, 
I think that we really need to focus on the kind of social determinants of of health and of crime, um, like poverty, like intergenerational trauma, like unequal access to nutritious food and clean drinking water and strong education and, and a loving community. This is Mixed Weekend. Hello, I'm Andrew Dow in Six Nations, Ontario. You are tuned in to Viewpoints. Follow us on Twitter at CanadaLJI. Listen to all our stories online at Canada-Info.ca. The Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives, Nova Scotia, has published a new report called A Critical Assessment of Virtual Mental Health Care for Rural Nova Scotians. The assessment was produced by Robin Lozon, a recent graduate from Acadia University. The report concludes that rural Nova Scotians have faced greater isolation since the start of the pandemic, and online methods of mental health care delivery are partly responsible. Virtual mental health care seems to have exacerbated feelings of isolation due to fewer face-to-face interactions with physicians. Here's Ailey DiRizio speaking to researcher Robin Lozon in Halifax about the conclusions of the study and what needs to be done to break the cycle of isolation. Rural people across the country and specifically in Nova Scotia experience some barriers in terms of accessing care, whether that be access to practitioners um, within their community. And even if there are available practitioners, it's also access to specialists or members of um, like diverse groups that are in communities that are similar and have shared lived experiences. So access is one. Location, I think in terms of transportation, driving to and from appointments, Internet accessibility is also a major issue and barrier for a lot of rural Nova Scotians. And then there's also some more of those like societal barriers, including including isolation. So isolation in rural communities is a big issue. And then also the stigma that exists in a lot of rural communities. So those are some sort of pre-existing barriers that have been around before the pandemic, but were things that we had to grapple with during the pandemic and in terms of how virtual care has sort of benefited and exacerbated those i mean there are some major benefits like in terms of the opportunity to reach out and receive care from clinicians who may not live in your area that's huge being able to reach out to specialists online not having to drive back and forth to appointments Um, and for a lot of people virtual care is more comfortable like it may have there's increased anonymity and people who may not be comfortable in a clinical environment they can receive care um, virtually but There's also a lot of major barriers and sort of drawbacks for rural people specifically. So I think one of the largest things that I heard from a lot of practitioners was just internet accessibility has been just a major issue because if you can't get on the internet, if you're not comfortable using the internet, virtual care is really not a solution that at this time is going to work for you. There's also sort of isolation. It it further removes people from sort of clinical environments. So Mm -hmm. if you really respond well to going in and seeing your practitioner face to face and holding a space with someone, uh, having to shift over to virtual care during the pandemic 
can have a really isolating experience. And a lot of virtual care, I mean, not practitioners so much, but apps and websites, they're very general. So they might not get right at those unique barriers and issues in rural contexts that people need help with. Um, rural areas have larger elderly populations as well in Nova Scotia. Mm -hmm. So having someone to show people what's sort of available and what they can access themselves will be very beneficial. Moving forward when designing new virtual policies to sort of include the feedback and collaborate with rural practitioners, like create space for policy feedback because virtual care has really been accelerated during the pandemic, obviously, because things were shut down. So you have to shift online. It's just kind of something that had to happen and was needed at the time. But I think now's the time for some reflection and to collaborate with rural people and rural practitioners to know, okay, in context, how does this work and how might we change this or adopt it or get right at those barriers that rural people themselves experience and sort of adopt virtual care to fit for them. Not only the pandemic, but also the shift to virtual care has impacted the isolation that people across the province, but especially in rural communities feel. Like if you're living in a rural area and you don't have that same community around you, it can even heighten that experience. And to close our show, we turn to Alberta, where the city of Edmonton is taking the bull by the horns, or shall we say the tree by the roots. Mayor Amarjita Sohi, along with other city officials, announced uh, the city will be planting over 2 million trees over the next eight years. And it's going to be very expensive. The federal government will be investing $48 million into the project from its 2 billion trees program, and the city of Edmonton will be adding 66 million as part of its greener as we grow a tree planting project which aims to plant more trees in the city as time moves on more on this with ryan hunt the city of edmonton announced on july 24th that it's moving forward with its commitment to plant more than 2 million trees in the city thanks to funding from the federal government and its own programs nicole frazier the general supervisor of planning and monitoring of infrastructure operations at the city of Edmonton. We were very happy to announce that the City of Edmonton has received a $47.9 million grant from the federal government as part of its Two Billion Trees program. With that funding, along with $66 million in investment from the city, we're going to be planting over the next eight years over 2 million trees in Edmonton. Fraser says that this funding has been something the city has been working towards for a while now. We've been talking about this project, I think, ever since the federal government announced its grant, and we've been working on the grant application probably for over a year as well as planning for where to plant the trees for a couple years now. Fraser says that there is a lot more things trees in an urban area can do than one might think. There's a lot of benefits to growing our urban forest canopy in the city of Edmonton. Some of them are economic benefits, so things like reducing pressure on our drainage system. When you plant more trees and you increase the tree cover and the vegetation cover in the city, it actually slows down rain and reduces pressure on our drainage system, reducing flooding and the associated damages from flooding. It reduces erosion on slopes as well and it also makes a more beautiful city. We're also providing shade for people to enjoy the parks in and we're reducing something called heat island effect. So that's where places in the city that have less greenery, less 
these trees, they naturally become hotter. And that is going to be more of a problem as the climate heats up. And so if we increase the amount of greenery and the amount of trees that are in those areas, it reduces the temperature within the city. I'm Ryan Hunt. And that's all for us this week. Thanks to our journalist Ryan Hunt, Haley DiRizio, Scott Anishak, and Mick Sweetman, national editors Victoria Fenner and Maureen McEwen. Viewpoints is produced by the Community Radio Fund of Canada. I'm your host and producer, Boris Shasain. See you next week. Thanks for being with us. Ciao.